0: Welcome, everyone. Uh, TeachingAmericanHistory.org and the Center for Civic Education's We the People program are pleased to present this six-session webinar series, We the People, a Foundation for Teaching the U.S. Constitution. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is the leading online resource for documents, lessons, multimedia, and programs for teachers of American history, government, and civics. TH.org's programs are unique in that they are all focused around primary documents only. Tonight's program will consist of a presentation of roughly 45 minutes, followed by a question and answer segment. I will take notes of the questions posed in the chat window throughout the program and will ask those of Dr. Lloyd after his presentation. So as you're watching and come up with questions, please post them in the chat window for everyone to see. Everyone will be emailed a continuing education certificate verifying your attendance each session. There's no need to do anything and you'll receive this within a week of each session. Finally, if you're interested in graduate credit for attending all six sessions, you can do so by writing a lesson based on at least two of the documents Dr. Lloyd uses during the series. Please email Jeremy Gripton, whose email is now in the chat window, directly for more information. The presenter for this series is Dr. Gordon Lloyd, Professor Emeritus at Pepperdine University and Senior Fellow at the Ashbrook Center. He's one of the leading scholars on American political thought and Ashbrook is proud to have partnered with him to build the nation's leading online resource on the American founding at teachingamericanhistory.org. Dr. Lloyd, thank you for joining us this evening and for the next few weeks. The floor is yours.
1: Thank you very much, Kelly. Um, Can you hear me all right? Sounds perfect. Okay, good. Now, what I'm going to do is to go through the state hearing questions 2015, 2016, which is unit three. And the big question for unit three is how has the constitution been changed to further the ideals contained in the declaration of independence? So unit three is moving beyond the founding and starting to go to the civil war. And it seems to me if I were to restate that Question it would be what is the relationship between the Civil War and the American founding? Compatible Transformation and I would like to uh, Focus on that notion of transformation versus um, Sort of Accompanying and correcting but within the same framework and you will see that the the subunits within this um, approach, state hearing questions, actually do address what I've been, what I've just summarized. For example, question number one, the Civil War worked, this is a quote, the Civil War worked profound changes in the Constitution. Company, uh, accounting to what many have called America's second founding. What were those changes to the Constitution? That's the big question. And immediately, I have a, an issue to raise. The unit three is, what is the, how has the Constitution changed with regard to the Declaration of Independence? And this first question is, The Civil War were profound changes in the Constitution. So that raises, it seems to me, the issue of what is the relationship between the Declaration and the Constitution, which we need to to examine. And I encourage you to raise that question in our question and answer. What were those changes in the Constitution? Well, the most obvious changes in the Constitution that occurred as a result of the Civil War the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, end of slavery, civil rights, the 14th Amendment, and voting rights, the 15th Amendment. Uh, those are the most obvious changes. Are they profound changes? Uh, Both yes and no. What's the no? Those notions of no slavery civil rights and voting rights were in existence from the founding itself in um, pretty much all of the Northern states. So in a sense, it's not profound. Well, then what is profound? Because I said, yes, it is profound. What is profound is that it is clearly directed to Southern states that did not end slavery, did not give, Slaves, uh, whether emancipated or uh, emancipated slaves, or or or, or uh, um, any particular civil rights protections and public accommodation, nor voting rights. So the profundity, as far as I'm concerned, is there's the issue of does the South belong to itself or is the South part of America? And I think what the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment lays down is we're no longer going to tolerate as Americans the issue of slavery in the South. So if you Southerners want to be part of what it is to be American, we're no longer going to tolerate slavery. Is that profound? As I said, yes, because it's American now rather than um, Mississippi or Alabama. So it's profound. But no, it's not profound because most of the states already had done that. So what the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments Amendments do to the original Constitution is to take the issue of slavery, civil rights, and voting rights out of the hands of the states because civil rights, voting rights, et cetera, and slavery were up till those 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, in the hands of the states. So part of the profundity, see, if I ask you the question, could Americans vote before the 15th Amendment? The instinctive response is no, but that's not correct. Could women vote in America before the passage of the 19th Amendment? The instinctive response is no, that would be wrong. So what is the profundity of the 19th Amendment with regard to women's voting? It is it, it, it is that the residence, that is, where a woman resides, does not govern whether she can vote or not. It is now an American question taken out of the hands of the states and localities. That is exactly the issue with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. So I think this issue of whether it is profound or not depends on whether whether the rationalization, the uniformity of this across the states is deemed to be profound, or whether or not the fact that a minority of states are finally coming on board is, well, We live through a huge exasperation. It's about time. So I'd love to entertain questions concerning this issue of, were the changes in the Constitution with regard to the Civil War amendments profound? In addition, there is another question which is raised concerning this first big issue. So the 1A was, should these changes be called profound? Why or why not? I've addressed that. And I've left it open for us to discuss. The second subpart of this first question, and I, let me repeat the first question, the Civil War worked profound changes in the Constitution. So <laughs> this statement <laughs> that profound changes is an assumption, whereas 1A questions that which I think is worthwhile. The Civil War worked profound changes in the Constitution amounting to what many have called America's second founding. What were those changes in the Constitution? Well, the answer is 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and we've examined profound. So what is one? is 1A is what we've looked at, should these changes be called profound? And 1B is in what ways, if any, Do these constitutional changes amount to America's second founding? Well, that is a very big question. Uh, Many regimes have been through changes. The part of the American narrative is that we're the longest living, continuous democracy in the history of the world, which would suggest that the Civil War amendments do not amount to a profound second founding. On the other hand, the amendments do make a change. So is the change at the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments amount to the equivalent of a correction of the first founding, an amendment of the first founding, or a transformation of the first founding? That's the issue, and that's the issue you're being asked to consider. So let me give you my sort of brief uh, response that we can then talk about. I think that it depends very, very heavily on whether you follow, on the one hand, Abraham Lincoln and uh frederick douglas or you follow on the other hand william lloyd garrison and judge roger tony as to whether a second has, uh, founding has been created if you follow lincoln and frederick douglas And by the way, I would even think that if you went into the 20th century and you would include Martin Luther King. The Civil War amendments, 13th, 14th and 15th amendments are fulfilling. The promise or the idea or sometimes people might call it the ideals of the Declaration of Independence and and the Constitution, it's about time sorry it took a war it could have been avoided but it's not that a transformation in the american regime has occurred how unfortunate it took a war to fulfill so is it a transformation or a fulfillment and within that within that sort of uh, framework where does war fit in? because war implies that they're winners and losers. War implies that some kind of transformation is is is, is, is taking place, that that negotiations broke down and you, you no longer have friends and enemies, all you have are enemies. Um, fulfillment implies that it is very difficult to to live up to these ideas, but there's nothing wrong with the ideas. Now, the principles of the American founding are fine so that we haven't really transformed the regime by the 13th and 14th Amendment. We've simply fulfilled it, and how unfortunate to fulfill it by a war. And that would be the case, I think, that Lincoln and Frederick Douglass would make. The other side, which is very interesting because it involves almost polar opposites, you have William Lloyd Garrison in the 1840s, actually calling for secession because he thinks that the original founding is a compact with the devil. That the original Constitution through the three-fifths clause, through the importation of slavery clause, plus the fugitive slave clause, and even the Republican Guarantee Clause, somehow enhances, guarantees, embodies in the very Constitution itself, the continuation and endorsement of slavery. So the choice is to leave the Constitution, form separate states among those people who do not believe in those principles, or to change those principles. So the William Garrison approach is, unlike Lincoln and and Frederick Douglass, there is something rotten at the core of America which needs to be transformed, because it is a compromise, a deal with the devil. So that the civil war is going to appear as some kind of necessary bloodletting in order to have uh, a transformation in some religious uh, fashion which means that we're now into a new promised land and we can forget the founding altogether for thank goodness we have um, uh, released the American people from this burden of slavery. That would be, let's say, William Lloyd Garrison, the abolitionist. Uh, Right at the opposite, but it is still this transformation idea would be Tony, who would claim that neither the Declaration nor the Constitution intended to include uh, African Americans within the framework of we the people. And therefore, any attempt to describe fulfilling the American dream of equality and liberty is absolute nonsense. So. That whereas Garrison wanted to secede because it's a because the Constitution and is is a compact with the devil, Tawney and others would make the argument that the abolitionists are the devils, and what we need to do is to transform by creating a new confederacy. And at the heart of this new Confederacy is going to be that the fundamental premise of the Declaration of Independence is a self-evident lie and the Constitution is a self-evident problem and that we are going to alter both the Declaration and the Constitution. So I think we need to talk about those positions as I repeat what the question is, in what ways, if any, do these constitutional changes 13th 14th 15th amendment amount to America's second founding i think for garrison it's american second founding thank goodness i think for people like tawney and calhoun and the secessionists etc it does amount to america's second founding my goodness that's terrible For somebody like Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, it does not amount to America's second founding. It is a fulfillment. How unfortunate that we had to go through all this blood in order to make what is clearly there fulfilled. And darn it, it took over 60 years to do it and a war in order to do it. So, there are the sides. And as you can see in me answering these questions, I'm really trying to pose, I'll give you, I'm giving you my opinion, but at the same time, I'm trying to oppose how you can push with your students to develop a coherent and deep, nuanced response to these issues. So, that's question number one. Question number two the 14th Amendment. Mandates. I dislike that word so much. That's order, mandarin. Uh, that is so contrary to everything that is American, which is based on consent, not orders. But never mind. I'm sure you don't want to get into picky questions with regard to the state hearings, but they say the 14th Amendment mandates. It's almost like guarantees. There are no guarantees in politics. Nevertheless, let's proceed. If you want to ask me about mandates, guarantees, and politics, I'll be happy to engage in that. But at the moment, it says the 14th Amendment mandates that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The content is true. Whether it mandates or not is an issue. continue it does not define due process of law however that's a problem i mean i don't quite follow why the folks who ask this question find it difficult so let, let me ask you this should we have three paragraphs two paragraphs one paragraph which says and by due process of law we mean A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Is that what the unit state hearing questions are asking you and your students to come up with? Because it's, what, vague? People knew what due process of law meant. If you go back to Magna Carta, as we looked at last time, uh, we go back to the Bill of Rights in the American situation, due process of law means that you have the right to face your accuser, you have the right to counsel, you have the right not to incriminate yourself, For, to summarize without going into all the detail and spending time, it's due process means 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th Amendment, or 8th Amendment, no unreasonable uh, you know fines and whatnot so that if you bundle what is in the Bill of Rights as the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th Amendment, you have a Statement of due process of law. The very nature of due process of law is evolving From Magna Carta on it becomes part of the fabric of life. You cannot just simply list what a cruel and unusual punishment is. You cannot simply list those things. It's not supposed to be listed. So due process of law is a tradition. It's a culture that we expect that government shall not be unreasonable, that government officials shall not be unreasonable. Reasonable people require reasonable procedures in order to proceed. And so what I think the original intent of due process of law in the 14th Amendment means is that free blacks are gonna be treated like free whites with regard to the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Amendments that are in the Constitution and applied to the states. And interestingly, the last section of of the 14th and 15th amendment leaves it up to Congress to make all such laws, which are in effect necessary and proper for putting those into effect. So it's while the concept of due process is constitutionalized and in the constitution, the details, with regard to this age, that age, this community, that community, is ultimately left to the legislative branch to work out as people work things out. So that raises the question, is the constitution supposed to spell every single thing out? Which this question seems to imply, which I think is wrongheaded. Or is the constitution supposed to state basic principles? Which it does. And so what I think that we should talk about is what is the concept of due process and then how does one actualize or put into effect due process? And in that regard, I think there is a fundamental difference between the British way of actualizing due process, which is... Uh, from Magna Carta on and in the, in the British tradition, which is basically through common law. Um, and the American way of actualizing a due process, which involves elections, not simply judges, but the sense of the people as time goes by and what the changing sense and the genius of the people come up with. So. It, Due process is a concept, well, what it means in practice is in effect in Britain left to the courts and in America, at least in the original time, is left to the good sense of the people to to implement. So that's the second question which we are asked to take a look at, to repeat. The 14th Amendment mandates that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It does not define due process of law, however. How would you explain the concept of due process of law? And I've tried to um, provide you with an explanation. The due process of law is uh, is an evolving uh, concept that goes from Magna Carta through the British tradition into the colonial tradition. You don't know where it began, and you don't know where it ends, and it's somehow always been there. But the Fourteenth Amendment applies it to free, to free blacks, and includes them within the community, and therefore bestows on free blacks what free whites were—I um, don't know—mandated, guaranteed, but expected. Now. There is nothing within the Fourteenth Amendment which would suggest that you. That, I mean, whether you write something down, it's very difficult to know how it's going to be. So here we are, a hundred and I don't know what is it, fifty years beyond the Fourteenth Amendment. Who the heck would have ever thought it would have applied to areas way beyond what its original intent was? But that's fortunately not a question in number, question number two but i'm happy to talk about that the two sub questions which i i think i've already addressed but we can make sure that we have addressed it the, the, the two sub questions within number two is what is the relationship if any of due process proce, process to natural rights philosophy and the principle of limited government well i think due process is not to be derived from natural rights philosophy it preceded natural rights philosophy It's part of common law part of the British feudal system that got transformed over uh, the right of uh, the right of trial by jury etc natural rights philosophy is a very heady experience that comes a lot from John Locke and the American situation. And it involves what we might call the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Third Amendment, Ninth Amendment, and maybe even uh, with a bit of, that would have to stretch because it's very American intent. So if I were to show to what extent due process of law have made it into the Bill of Rights, I would say fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. If I were to say, in what way has natural rights made its way into the Bill of Rights. I'd say one, two, three, nine, with a a bit of a prod and a bit of an extension, number 10. And that would be a bit of an extension. I'd be very willing to drop it. To what extent has due process and natural rights made its way into the very constitution in addition uh, to Bill of Rights? I would think that due process makes its way in, in Article 1, Section 9, um, habeas corpus shall not be suspended, um, that sort of thing, that, that 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 really raised an issue during the Civil War. Uh, natural rights, uh, there's been an avoidance of listing natural rights, but I certainly think that if you look at the Declaration of Independence, the right to private property, the right to private conscience, and the right to choose the form of government under which one shall live. That's not the process. Uh, that's natural rights. So natural rights would emphasize first, second, third, ninth amendment right to private. And maybe a part a part of the fifth and part of the fifth. I forgot that because it, it, that gets, it, it gets complicated. So what we have within the American experience is both due process, which goes back to Magna Carta and it gets revised and then natural right, which is peculiarly American and has nothing to do with Magna Carta. So let's ask this question again. What is the relationship, if any, of due process to natural rights philosophy? Uh, There's a relationship, they go together. They're not necessarily antagonistic to each other at all. They can live in harmony, but one ought not to confuse the right to conscience, natural right, with the right to trial by jury, due process. And why are both important? Well, I've explained, oh no, is that what they asked? The principle of a limited government. Well, limited government essentially is a statement that what we want is the governors to rule reasonably. Due process suggests that those in power can rule reasonably if they follow the following procedures which we call due process, that would be the rule of law that you do not take private property without just compensation, that you do not fine unnecessarily and egregiously that you have a right to trial by jury. So limited government, the opposite is unlimited government. What is a feature of unlimited government? I'm in power and I can do whatever I want to do. So due process limits or tries to limit the government from being arbitrary autocratic to following certain rules of law. How about natural rights? Well, it does, it limits government to securing those natural rights. And and what does that mean? That if I were to borrow from Thomas Jefferson and and where he asks the question, what is the proper role of government? Say, with regard to religion, where the role of government was rather extensive in feudal times and all the way back to classical times because the government was interested in character building. The role of government would get into whether you're charging too much whether you're not receiving enough wages, whether it it is a sin to make money off of money, whether rents were too high or too low, that the government would be heavily involved in what we might call moral education or character building, excuse me. And what Jefferson thought, that we should have a reduced role for government, the government should not be involved in massive character building and making these decisions. Rather, government should be limited, which means limited to what? And Jefferson will respond, limited, basically, and then we can talk after this, he says, limited to making sure that my neighbor does not pick my pocket or break my leg. Once those two conditions are met, then we can talk but the government as a do-gooder, transforming my neighbor and transforming me into different people. is not what I mean by limited government. So due process limits government to reasonable actions and natural right limits government to things which are necessary like protecting private property, not violating the right of conscience and Realizing that legitimate government is based on the consent of the governed, We turn now finally to the third question. This is a long one. I mean, the statement is long. It doesn't mean to say that we have to spend very long. The question goes, uh, the statement goes like this. Why are, why, excuse me, let me start again. Quotation. Who are to be the electors of the federal representatives? question mark, not the rich more than the poor, not the learned more than the ignorant. The electors are to be the great body of the people of the United States. They are to be the same who exercise the right in every state of electing the corresponding branch of the, legislators, of the legislature of the state. And that is a quotation from James Madison, trying to explain the extent to which the American experiment, it, 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 its that's not in there. This is me. The extent to which the American experiment is based on the consent of the governed. So who is going to vote? No more the rich than the poor. Because in the US Constitution and in the state constitutions, there is no statement that you have to have a property qualification for voting. Nor the rich more than the poor. Not the learned more than the ignorant there is not a requirement that you pass college in order to vote certainly not that you have a phd in order to vote so madison is not the rich more than the poor or not the learned more than the ignorant who then does who what's in the electorate he says the electorate ought to be the great body of the people neither neither just the rich nor the poor nor the learned nor the ignorant, but the great body of the people. They are to be the same who exercise the right in every state of electing the corresponding branches of the, of the legislature. So what he's doing here is trying to explain that the right to vote in the American framework follows the right to vote in the lowest branch, the first branch in the state. So if you can vote in Massachusetts, in the legislative branch, you can vote for Congress. That seems to me to be a statement by Madison to show the extent to which the Constitution is based on the consent of the governed, neither rich, nor poor, nor learned, nor ignorant. So it comes as a total surprise to me to see what the follow-up, the interpretive, the interpretive question is: here it is, almost two centuries passed before James Madison's prediction became reality. Why? It seems to me that that question is totally biased. It misses the whole point of the founding, that somehow the founding was deceptive, illegitimate, that. He really didn't mean it. And it took two centuries. So let, let, let's go now. What do we mean? Almost two centuries. So let's add 200 years to when he said this. to doesn't indicate when he said it. But it's Federalist 57. So that's 1788. It took nearly two centuries. So that means almost 1988 before that concept. Prediction is not a prediction. It's an assumption. I don't understand where they get the word prediction from. It's an assumption, became reality. What well, is the point? So, then the follow-up is why. Well, I mean, give them the question. The answer is something has happened between the founding, which is defective, and today, which is more perfective, to alter that. And I guess we are supposed to say Fourteenth Amendment. 19th Amendment, 23rd Amendment, whatever else, uh, this law, that law, and finally, we can gloat and, and uh, about who we are. So I would question the nature of the question, which probably is not going to help in terms of helping your students. But I think that is a rather um, troublesome question. So 3A. That says who would be the electors, et cetera. And the big point is almost two centuries passed before James Madison's prediction. Let me just tell you, prediction is not what James Madison was getting at. Two centuries is not the issue and reality is not the issue and why is not the question. But that's the question you have to deal with. You wanna ask me more, I'll deal with it. But 3A, in what ways, if any, is the right to vote? related to the fundamental principles of american constitutional government of course it is it's essential but the implication of that question is that the right to vote was not part of the original constitution yes it is It, it says that the right to vote in the american system depends on whether or not you have the right to vote within for the lowest for the first branch the first branch of the state in which you live and if women could vote if if blacks could vote so this question like the big part of question number three presupposes that the it in fact tilts the discussion in favor that the 13th 14th and 15th amendment transformed america whereas in fact African-Americans could vote before the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. It just now excludes the states from doing so. Uh, How is it related? It's related. But the fundamental principle of American constitutional government is that we're not one rationalized, uniform national government. We are a nation of people and a nation of states. And so we need to ask the question: Do the states matter anymore? Because it's in the states that we have divorce laws, marriage laws, um, birth laws, driver's license laws, r- basically right to vote laws. So if we now say that the right to vote is not a not a right that should be retained in each state, but should be re- should be moved to the national level we need to express that clearly, rather than saying that the past was prejudiced. And finally, 3B, voter turnout in presidential elections over the past 80 years has ranged from a low of 50% to a high of 62%. Why do you think so many Americans fail to cast ballots? What might be done to improve this record? Good question. But here on my ending, I would like to, which my ending is, which I hope is a beginning, is to suggest that there's a distinction that needs to be made between civic education and civic engagement. This 3B suggests that we need to improve on the record of engagement, that somehow 50% is not a good number, but 62% may be a closer number. And how do we get to 62%? And that would be improvement. So therefore, the more we engage, the better the democracy is. My point is not necessarily so. What if people don't understand what the heck is going on? That's the issue. We need civic education. So, we've got two things to deal with. Civic education that does not translate into civic engagement is simply knowing the system without acting in it. Civic engagement without civic education is acting in the system without knowing about it. So, I think we need both. And I think this whole program that we are discussing is about both civic education and civic engagement. What sense does it make to be fully informed about the way the American system works and then not vote? What sense does it make to say, I'm going out to vote, but I don't have the faintest idea, or I have such a limited idea about how the American system works? So I think civic education folks and civic engagement folks need to work together. And so that it's not just moving from 50% to 62% numerically, which is engagement, but that 12% also involves people who are higher educated. It doesn't mean that you make more money. It doesn't mean that you are owning property. It means that you care about your country and that you know what the heck you're voting for, that you're informed, that is, you care. So caring is being civically educated, and civically engaged so i would add to this last point about turnout at presidential elections over the past it has been such and such um what do we make about the content of that extra 12 percent? does it matter whether they're civically educated or or not here's our opportunity and to completely conclude why is this question directed to simply Presidential elections. Whatever happened to local elections? What happened to congressional elections? Are they, by the way, sideshows? What? I mean, why is it that somehow this question of civic education and civic involvement turns on so much presidential elections? I mean, it's true. It's there. Look at the look at what we have. having. We still. 13 months away from a presidential election, and you wouldn't think that there's anything else going on in the country than presidential elections. That's bothersome. And I don't know to what extent that you can take up that issue in your classes. All right. I'm done. I wait for your questions.
0: Okay, thank you very much see. Our first question that we have is, uh, how do you think Madison would view the Civil Rights Amendments? And would he have seen them as a fulfillment of the ideas of the Declaration of Independence, a correction, or something else completely?
1: Fulfillment. He wanted such kind of amendments into the Constitution at the very beginning, but he didn't get it passed because of the objections of South Carolina.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So he wanted those. That would be a fulfillment, and it would never we would never have had to come to this this absolute terrible crisis. So Madison would have, Madison's, uh, in Madison's amendment proposals, he suggested that the right of conscience, the right of free speech and the trial by jury, not only be applied to the national government, but be applied to the state governments. And that would have probably been an avenue to incorporate through time the development. But one cannot, I mean, here's another point, is that one cannot assume that the next generation is going to be better than the current generation. And you never know what the next generation might come up with. So I think Madison didn't understand that the next generation could be worse and he would have thought that including those amendments within the original amendments would have been positive and avoided this the the whole issue that we're talking about
0: okay uh, up next we have is uh, substantive due process a mistake that's confusing natural rights with actual due process
1: i think the due process and natural rights are separate entities Due process is an attempt to have the rule of law by regular procedures that are followed by everyone. Natural rights are an appeal to God or nature. It's not an appeal to tradition. It's an appeal to God and nature. And that natural rights, you can have natural. Here's the thing, you can have natural rights without due process rights, and you can have due process rights without natural rights. The fact that America has brought the two together is one of the beauties of the American experiment.
0: Okay, could you, uh, we just had the question come in, could you explain the history of where due process comes from? Is it um, Anglo-Saxon philosophy or is it from you know, Hebrew, the Bible? Uh, what's, where does that flow from?
1: Well, that's very that, that that's, Maybe that's too
0: question. too big of a question, but yeah, yeah. the yeah. short version. You know,
1: we have to start somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And I think for the purposes of focusing on America and due process, which which I think is what we're doing, I think the point of departure should be the Magna Carta. Mm-hmm. And okay. the magna carta of 1215 which uh, now we're celebrating the 50th and 50th 500th anniversary of magna carta it lays down but from the nobles to the king king we expect you to govern reasonably so there so even if it goes back to hebrew etc there is an establishment of a tradition so how do you enforce this tradition of reasonable conduct you take oaths you swear that you shall do this and that through time it gets it 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 gets passed on to the next generation and our our parents and our forefathers and our grandmothers used to do this and we ought not to separate ourselves so quickly from what they have done and their traditions. So due process requires the dignity of tradition to bestow legitimacy. Natural rights does not require the dignity of tradition. Natural rights says slavery is wrong. The whole history of the world is that slavery exists. So if you're to rely on tradition, slavery is fine it's existed all over the darn world natural rights is not simply due process we shall do whatever our grandparents shall do and we shall pass that on but natural rights is sort of a challenge to the tradition and say by abstract appeal to god or an abstract appeal to nature this is right we're not going to say this is right because it's been traditional but it's right
0: OK, OK. And then up next we have is the uh, it's argued that democracy is only as good as how much we can trust our neighbors and the uh, 14th Amendment initially seems to be an extension of this. Um, but however, in today's world, due process reflects something different. Do you think that this change um, in our democ is a product of our democracy or our culture that we can no longer trust our neighbors to do what is right? Or does it go further and suggest that we cannot even trust ourselves?
1: that's i mean that's a very difficult question because i would not have thought that the due process clause assumes that we can trust our neighbors i would assume that the due process clause is based in the fact that we cannot trust our neighbors which is why we have due process that if we could trust our neighbors all the time why would we need a due process clause which says My neighbor has to accuse me in open court. Um, I have the right to protect myself. I can appeal to my other neighbors in a trial by jury. So there's a part of the question that I don't quite understand. Uh, I think it's an intriguing question. So my response is not to belittle it, but to say it took me by surprise and I'm trying to work through it. So for me, The origin of the due process clause is that those in power cannot be trusted to exercise their power reasonably, therefore we have to put limits, limited government, we have to put limits on how they exercise their power because we cannot trust them. So I have to admit that it's an intriguing question to suggest that at one level, the due process clause suggests that we trust our neighbors and then to imply that maybe today we do not trust our neighbors and therefore there's a difference in the due process clause. I think what is different in the due process clause today which would make sense in terms of the question which is asked is that is this it's not so much that we could trust a particular neighbor in the past, but we could trust the community of neighbors who know the entire situation to render a decent judgment, that is trial by jury. And part of that trial by jury is that our neighbors know who we are. Therefore, trial by jury is based on knowledge. Today, If I were to follow through this question, because it's really making me work, follow through this question, is that today when you go on a jury, it is what you don't know about somebody that seems to indicate that the best kind of wisdom is ignorance or neutrality. So, yes, I think that the trial by jury has changed. But it's not because... That somehow we trusted a neighbor then and don't trust a neighbor now, but it seems to me that we trusted our neighbors, plural, to render a decent judgment back then, but now we have to have a bunch of people who have, have absolutely no knowledge of the case, so we have moved from judgment to neutrality. I also think that one of the huge changes which have been made is the role of lawyers. And the selection of juries and the selection of things. That's a whole complete um, activity where people do that for a living. So, yeah, um, it's a very intriguing question. I had never thought of it before. So I was thinking on my feet there. And there you have it.
0: Okay. the um, next couple of questions um talk about states' rights. And the first one is the Tenth Amendment, powers not delegated nor prohibited or reserved to the states, should have provided um individuals should ha- should have provided, excuse me, individual states the ability to secede. And wasn't the right to secession a major factor for Virginia, Maryland, and Rhode Island in ratifying? Um
1: Uh, that's a that's a huge one, but uh, let me ask you because there, there are two parts to that question, mm-hmm. and I want to make sure that you read the first part accurately because the way I hear it, I'm I'm a bit confused. Am I correct that when I heard you, you said that the Tenth Amendment said that the powers not gro- <laughs> no I'm not going to even guess. Count, please okay. repeat the question.
0: Okay, I'll read the question again. The Tenth Amendment: Powers not ge- delegated nor prohibited are reserved to the states. That's, I guess, a, okay, summarization. Right. And right. then, um, should that Tenth Amendment have provided individual states the ability to, to secede? And then the second part of the question was: Wasn't the right to secede a major factor for Virginia, Maryland, and Rhode Island in ratifying?
1: All right. The Tenth Amendment, if read as a text, says, it is true, it says that the power is not delegated. It does not say expressly delegated, and the questioner did not use the word expressly, although most people who are 10th Amendment supporters read the word, the power is not expressly delegated, but the questioner, which is why I asked you to repeat it, does not state that. Mm-hmm. So, my point has to move on because that's not an issue. It says the powers not delegated are reserved to the states. But actually, the 10th Amendment says to the states or to the people, which leaves it open to the people of the states as to whether to leave those powers at the state level or to elevate them to the general level. And that becomes part of the political process. It's not an ironclad written in some kind of testament. So there is flexibility there, but yes, yes. The reason for the 10th amendment, however read with the word expressly or without it there, with the word people or without it there, the overall legitimate reasonable interpretation is to restrain the power of the federal government the powers which are listed, which means article one, section eight, that is correct. Okay. But the second part of the question implies that there is a right to secede within the 10th amendment and part of the, the evidence which is offered by the questioner, or let's say part of the data which is, has which is been proposed to me to comment on. Is weren't four states, I think you mentioned four, four states, um, uh, as a condition of ratification, said that they would secede if, if somehow something didn't happen? I mean, it, 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 would that be a reasonable way? Because I, I, I just want to make sure I got that, that mm-hmm. second yes. part. It's yes. that I think four states were mentioned and as part of ratification that if something wasn't seriously done, they had they with re- they retained the right to secede. Is that basically the question? Yes. OK, Virginia, no. The other three states, the other the only state in which that was raised as a possibility was New York, in which the delegates said that we will ratify conditionally. And the condition was that the first Congress do something about our amendment proposals, otherwise New York State, and if New York State doesn't wanna do it, New York City will secede from the union. And that was defeated and said, well, let's, let's not make it a conditional amendment. So there is actually, through the 10th amendment and through the, so there's no explicit language in favor of secession in the 10th amendment. Secondly, which is the second part of it, there is no explicit evidence in the ratifying condition conventions other than New York, which the questioner didn't raise, other than in New York where secession as a condition for ratifying was raised, but that was defeated.
0: Okay, and then the second question about um, states and the amendments is, uh, came from a few people actually, and it was that the Congress decided that for the southern states to be readmitted to the Union required them to ratify the 14th Amendment, but only a state can ratify the amendment. So a couple of people were wondering, was that ratification process legal according to the Founders' view of amending the Constitution?
1: Yeah, that's a very, very good question, and that I don't—that issue is not going to go away at all. Um, it's dubious. The strict legality question is dubious, and the reason for that is: did the states ever leave the union? And that's a good question. If the states left the union, why did they have to be re-entered? If they didn't leave the union. Then, what are we talking about? So, there's a whole dubious character, legalistic character behind this whole thing that I don't think anybody at any time is going to be able to uh, um, exclusively or f- finally resolve. I think the point is this that the issue is after the, after the civil war, the North, or the war between the states, the South, what kind of union are we going to have, regardless of whether the states actually left the union or didn't leave the union, and, and whether we had enough states to ratify or not, which are very good questions, but I don't think we'll ever be able to answer that. So for me, what we can answer or what we can deal with is i think by the end of the civil war there was a disposition certainly by the north is that slavery is no longer an american thing and if you want to be part of america you cannot have slavery anymore do you or do you not agree regardless of all the difficulties that we have to go through concerning whether there were enough states to ratify this, or or it was a push or a putch or whatever it is that we call it. I think that's the issue of the Civil War. What does it mean to be an American? And up till then, it seems to me that you could be an American and say that folks in Mississippi could have slaves and folks in Massachusetts couldn't have slaves and That's fine. I think what the Civil War decided was that this is no longer a local issue. We have to make the statement whether or not slavery is part of the being America. And however legally or around it, that's the issue. And I think that that in order to rejoin our never leaves therefore you cannot rejoin those were the conditions but at the same time that gave the south a huge range of how to interpret that you can again slavery but now you can introduce segregation and i think slavery and segregation are different issues slavery has to do with emancipation um and how how free people live with each other is a different issue and that's where the South went into desegregation laws, Jim Crow laws, and that takes us beyond the purpose of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. It does take us into the 19th 1860s where certain public accommodation laws were passed. But I don't they don't take. And sometimes laws don't don't change people's behavior, certainly not overnight if you've just had a war. So that would be my answer.
0: Okay, thank you. And um, I have a couple questions for you to uh, explain further the difference between substantive due process and regular uh, due process, and then where that substantive due process comes from. Is it the Supreme Court or some other?
1: Yeah, I think the quick quick answer is that there was no nothing in Magna Carta and the colonial and early American tradition that was with that would um, validate something called substantive due process. It was procedural due process that before a, a rule or an edict became a law, you had to follow certain procedures like right to counsel, right to a fair trial, right to such and such and such and such. It had nothing to do, well, it had very little to do with the substance. I think substantive due process, for the most part, is not part of the due process heritage, nor the natural rights heritage. It is, for the most part, in terms of the way in which you ask the question, it is a court-imposed understanding that Due process has substance to it, and and that takes us that that takes us into a huge different level than the issue of where does due process come from, where natural rights come from, it gets us into a. I mean, that's way beyond the civil rights, the, the civil war amendments, and into the whole court uh, m- mentality. Yes, I think I think that is. Uh, A quick answer, as we're winding down, I I think a quick answer would be that to find the meaning of substantive due process, you have to look to court decisions. Okay.
0: And uh, next question um, talks about Thomas Jefferson. And do you think that he, uh, or why do you think, excuse me, rather, that he believed in public education? And where does the classical Republican value of civic virtue play a role in that?
1: Well, I think that Jefferson, and I'm going to include Madison in this because they're joined at the hip on this issue of civic education, and they both were, I mean, Jefferson was number one at University of Virginia, and then Madison was number two, and they had this long discussion about what education should be. They were very interested in civic education. And Madison, in fact, wanted at the Constitutional Convention to create a national university that was free of religious influence. And it was turned down uh, mainly because certain delegates said, we don't need to list that power because the power is already there. But it turned out that that never, never took place. Madison's, I think one of the fundamental criticisms of the founders, and it's something that, I want to challenge one of the fundamental criticisms of the founders is that they did not prepare for their replacement. And if they were all civically educated, the only person who didn't have an advanced degree, as far as I can tell, is Hamilton, who dropped out. They were all deeply educated in the classics. Left huge libraries, Dickinson Library at Dickinson uh, at College, Jefferson and Madison at University of Virginia. I they left uh, huge, uh, massive correspondence. Washington was enamored with ancient Roman plays. So yeah, they were extremely educated, and they thought that the population should be educated in republicanism. That doesn't necessarily mean that they should be. All of people should be classically educated or educated simply in Cicero or Cato, but certainly the leaders should be. That the more ordinary folks should certainly know how to read, write, and add, and that you cannot have a well functioning democratic republic if the population is ignorant. That is me to say they have to have PhDs. I mean, one of the quotes that I did here is the, um, as Madison's saying, not the rich more the more than the poor, not the learned learned more than the ignorant. But he would like the ignorant not to be many. He liked the learned to be more. So what you want is a middle-class learned democracy. So I think civic education for the leaders, civic education for the people is vital. Madison and Jefferson thought that was extremely important, that people know. So that we get back to the point that I made earlier. I think we need to follow through in this relationship between civic education and civic uh, engagement. Civic engagement without education is just just foolishness civic education without civic engagement is ivory tower i think we need both and right now i think we need personally i think we need more civic engagement and we need I, i think excuse me i think we need more civic education than we need civic engagement and i would say Rather than say, how do we raise the engagement from 50% to 62% in presidential elections? I would say, how do we raise the understanding of our system from pretty close to 0% to 50%? I
0: think uh, this next question uh, is in the same vein, and it uh, asks... um, it seems that the rich uh, are mostly involved in politics and making the decisions in who will run and, and who can run next. So how um, is it that civic education that we get uh, the average person or even the poor uh, people more involved in the political discussions that are going on and who, who gets to be elected at the end of the day? Schools.
1: This is where public teachers come in, where teachers at are- excuse me private schools public schools they take tech seriously they take separation of power they take federalism they raise the questions how are these people going to become educated uh sure the one percent have the money yeah and they're funding and both left and right gates is funding all kinds of things coke is funding all kinds of things so you've got left and right going on uh yeah are you going to be able to defeat that probably not So what do you do? You you try one step at a time to educate your students with regard to what it means to be an American and what it means to understand the nature of the Democratic Republic without embarrassment. And that, I think, is part of the problem that our teachers face the issue that somehow America ain't quite worthy of defending. There's an embarrassing kind of quality to it. So face the embarrassing qualities head on, and face the decent qualities head on, and teach people. I don't think that members of Congress know much about the Constitution and what is going on, and certainly the, uh, the, the, the state legislatures don't seem to know what is going on. We've got all kinds of little formulas. So I think there's a huge role for civic education to play in the rejuvenation of the Democratic Republic from the founding to the Civil War, including the question that we will mainly focus on today. Is the Civil War a transformation or a fulfillment of the founding? Fantastic question very, very important. If it's transformation, forget the founding. Just start with the, with, with, with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, and have some incorporation of the Bill of Rights and move on. If you think that the Civil War is a fulfillment, then you have every reason to go back to the, um, to the American founding and deal with this development. It's not a static thing, America. It's not. It's, we've been in business for over 200 years. And so things are going to change. You go to the past and rely on the past. When it comes to the present, you're going to have to adjust it. Adjusted. But if you look at the past simply through the present, you're not going to learn anything through the past, from, from the past. You have, you have your mind made up already. The present is what is good. The past is what is bad. So I think we need to reconsider the methodology about how we approach the past and the present and the future.
0: Okay. Um, Well, as we quickly approach uh, 8.15, I think those are great words to finish up on. And um, so please, um, thank you, Dr. Lloyd, for joining us this evening. And thank you, everyone else, for attending and listening in, as well as asking some pretty great questions. Um, The archive of this session, as well as our past sessions, will be up on our blog. And that address to that website will um, soon be posted in your chat window. So um, please just let us know if there's any way we can help you um, attend any other sessions that are coming up. And uh, have a good evening, everyone.